Well, good morning. Welcome to Seabreeze. Great to see everybody. My name's Elliot. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new, you're probably wondering why we just showed a movie trailer in the middle of a church service. So let me explain that to you really quickly. What we're doing with this summer movie series, Box Office Wisdom, is we're taking some of the top movies over the summer and we're comparing the ideas that we receive in those movies with what God says in His Word. These movies send us powerful messages on how to deal with problems that we encounter in life, how to deal with other people, how to make decisions, what the big point of life is. So we want to compare what those movies say with what God's Word says to make sure that our thinking is in line with the way that He wants us to think. And so today we're going to be talking about this movie, Now You See Me Too. To understand this film, you really need to understand the first film. And in the first film, Now You See Me, what happens is you have four characters. They're four street magicians. They're very good at what they do. And they come together and form this kind of this magic group called the Four Horsemen. And they get a show in Vegas and they become very popular and gain a lot of fans. But really all they are is they're a modern-day Robin Hood act. And so what they do is they steal from people who are corrupt with a lot of money, and they give that money away to others. And they gain a lot of fans over the course of their act, because if you go to one of their shows, chances are money's going to fall from the ceiling. Just makes me wonder what would happen if all of a sudden, boom, millions of dollars are falling from the ceiling. But that's what they do, so they get a lot of fans. But at the same time, they also come up with a lot of enemies because they're stealing all this money. So that's where the second film picks up. second film picks up really right where the first one left off, where they've just pulled off this huge magic trick. Now they go into hiding because everybody's after them, and they try to um, kind of go incognito. But a new challenge arises, and the horsemen have to come back into the light in order to um, overcome this new challenge. And the new challenge... Um, is a new bad guy who he's got this scheme to kind of rule the world, and in that he's got all this deception going on, and so they've got to figure out a way to defeat him. And in order to defeat him, they use deception of their own. So he is deceiving the horsemen, the horsemen are deceiving the bad guy, the horsemen are deceiving each other, there's deception on the team, everybody's deceiving the authorities, the law enforcement actually in Law enforcement, there was deception going on in the movie, and then the public is just kind of naive to all this and just thinks the horsemen are amazing. But because deception is so prevalent throughout this movie, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about what is deception, what does the Bible say about it, what is the cause, what's the source of the deception, what causes us to be deceived, and then we're going to talk about how can we avoid deception. So that's what we're going to talk about. So I want to start with a quick definition of what it means to deceive. This is what it means to deceive. To deceive is to cause someone to believe something that is not true. To cause someone to believe something that is not true. That's what it means to deceive. We are intentionally misleading them. The goal is for them to to miss the truth and to believe something that's a lie. That's what deception is. Now, I want to make a distinction. There's a difference between deception and miscommunication. I mean, I could misspeak. I could, you know, I could say, hey, you know, it's down the street and to the right, and actually it's down the street and to the left. I just misspoke. I, I actually meant that it was to the left, but the word that came out, I, I did not mean to mislead you. That's not deception. That's just misinformation. Deception is when there's intentionality, and the point is to mislead the person that's receiving the information. So that's what deception is. And when we think about deception, deception can have some very serious consequences. I mean, just think about in the workplace what happens when there's deception. I mean, you think of a company like Enron. I mean, that happened years ago, but still people recognize that name because of the deception. Or 
Bernie Madoff would be another one. All the deception that he did. People were swindled out of millions and millions of dollars because of that deception. Or you think about in a relationship, what if you find out that this person you're in a relationship with was just deceiving you the whole time, presenting themselves as this is what's true about me, this is what's real, when the whole time something else was true or something else was real. They're intentionally misleading you. That can ruin a relationship. Or just think about your life. I mean, what if your ideas about what matters in life, how do we make decisions, what's the big point, what's the purpose, what's the goal in life, what if your ideas about that you find out are a deception? What if you come to the end of your life and you realize that this whole time, all these years that I've had on this earth, I've been deceived and I've completely missed the point? I mean, that can be devastating to come to the end of your life and to realize that. So deception is not something to be played around with. In the movie, you know, and even, you know, sometimes with magicians, they do their card tricks, the little sleight of hand, and it can be entertaining for a period of time. Or even in the movie, you know, two hours of this deception, you know, it can get some chuckles and some laughs, some cheap entertainment. But somehow in the movie when they do this, they all deceive each other and they're caught up in the deception. But then at the end of the movie, they're all best friends. You know, and they want to go hang out and have a drink and high-five one another. But in real life, when you find out that there's deception going on, that people are deceiving each other, it, it causes some real devastation. So we want to be careful. We want to know where does the deception come from, but also we need to know how can we avoid the deception because we don't want to be misled, and especially we don't want to be intentionally misled. So let's, for a moment, take a look at what the Bible teaches us about deception. If you're following along on your message insert, we're going to um, start filling in some blanks here for some of you that like to fill in the blanks. So the first blank under what does the Bible teach us about deception is the Bible teaches us that our enemy is deceptive. Our enemy is deceptive. We have an enemy out there who intentionally tries to mislead us. So what Jesus says in John 8:44. Jesus is talking to a group of individuals who are false teachers of his day, and this is what he says. He says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, there are several names in the Bible used to describe our enemy. Satan is one. Another one here is Jesus says that he's the devil. But then Jesus actually gives us even more, and he, he gives some descriptions of what our enemy is like. He says that he's a murderer. The idea is that's his goal. His goal is our destruction, ultimately our separation from God. His aim is to kill us. That, that's what he's set on. And, and it's a spiritual death where we're separated from God for all of eternity. That's why he's referred to as a murderer. Another thing that Jesus says, says he's a liar. The point is, at his core, that's who he is. He might present himself as one thing. He might play to our desires. But down at his core, what he's trying to do is he's trying to lie to us. He's going to intentionally mislead. Another thing that Jesus says, he's the father of lies. The point is, he's the best there is. No one else is better than our enemy at deceiving. In the movie, the bad guy actually does something interesting in order to deceive people. What he does is he fakes his death. And because he fakes his death, nobody thinks he exists. So now he can run all these companies and kind of control the world and try to do all this stuff, but nobody thinks he even exists, so they're completely unaware of the deception that's going on. Our enemy is very, very similar. He is, he is very covert in what he does because he doesn't want us to be aware of his end goal, what his aim is. There's an example of this um, in the book of Genesis that I want to take a look at, and it's interesting because this is, if you, if you read through the Bible, the example we're going to look at is at the very beginning of the Bible. 
So one of the things that God's communicating to us in telling this real story that happened is God's communicating to us is this is who you're up against, and you need to be aware of that. And he's operating just like he did then. He's operating the same way today. So we're going to look at this story in Genesis chapter 3. A little backstory, just so you know. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is about the creation of the world. God creates pretty much everything that we see out in nature, and then God creates Adam, the first man. God creates Eve, the first woman. He puts them in a garden. In the garden, there is love. There's perfection. Everything is good. There's freedom to choose. They're not robots. So God says you can eat from anything in the garden. There's just one tree. He gives them that choice because without a choice, you can't have love. So that's how God sets it all up. And then Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, this is where we'll pick up the story. This is where Satan, or as he's referred to here as the serpent, enters the story. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, I, I doubt that when Satan came and presented himself here, he presented himself as skeptical of God. I don't think he came up to Eve and was like, is God up to his old foolishness again and saying we can't eat from any of the trees? I don't think he did that. I think he's much more sly than that. So I think when he presented himself, it was probably more like, you know, hey, Eve, I don't slither very fast, so I was on the other side of the garden when God called the meeting, and I missed it, and I'm not quite sure what he said, but one of the animals mentioned to me as I was hustling over here that we're not supposed to eat from any of the trees. Could you help me out? Is that really what God said? So Eve's like, oh, sure, yeah, I'll help you out. So Genesis 3, verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, a few interesting things to note here. First of all, Eve starts this and she says, we can eat from the trees in the garden. So she, he, he says, we can't eat from any of the trees. And then she clears up and says, no, we can eat from the trees. There's just one we're not supposed to eat from. And what she's communicating there is her understanding that God had put the instruction, the command in place because of love. So she's saying, no, God is a good and loving God, and he only told us to stay away from this one tree because he knows for there to be a relationship, there has to be a choice. So she frames it in that context. And then she goes on, and this is interesting as well. She not only says, if you eat of it, you'll die. She says what? If you touch it. Well, God had never said that. So she's now adding to what God had said. She's revealing that she herself, even though she's framed it correctly, she's confused on what exactly God had said. So then the Satan, Satan the serpent, sees this as an opportunity. He says in verse 4, he says, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now let's unpack this. Let's break this down. There's some truth in here, which makes it even more believable. He says, You will not certainly die. We know the story. We know that Adam and Eve go on and they eat of the fruit. Did they fall over dead? Heart stop beating, lungs stop expanding, brain stop firing. Do they fall over dead in that moment? No. So is there some truth to that? Yeah, there's some truth. They died spiritually in that moment, and then stuff was put into play where down the road they would die physically. Yeah, all that happened in that moment, but they did not drop over dead. So there's some truth in that. And then he goes on, and there's even truth in what he says about, he says, you'll know good from evil. Up until that point, they had only known good. They had not known evil. And so there's truth that, okay, you'll know something that you've never known. You'll know good from evil. So he's sprinkling this truth in there. And then what he says, which is the most fascinating, is he really calls God's motivation into question when he says, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. 
See, Eve's just framed it in, okay, God did this because he loves us. He wants a relationship with us. The enemy comes along, he frames it and says, no, he doesn't want a relationship with you. He's trying to hold you back. He's blinding you. He's keeping you away from something, and he's trying to keep you from being like him. Essentially, God is the man, and God's just trying to suppress you and hold you back so that you can't accomplish what you could otherwise. That's how he frames it when he communicates. So he plays on something in her like, see, God's not, he's, he's not loving you. He's actually out to get you. So you can see how sinister this deception is. There's truth sprinkled in there, but then he plays on something within Eve trying to get her to eat this fruit. See, if, if when we were deceived by our enemy, if every time we were deceived, if his deception showed up with a little red character who had a tail with a little you know, hook on the end of it and had a pitchfork and some horns, Nobody would be deceived. We'd be like, oh, nice try, but see, I see your little red character there. I know that that's Satan. You know, I'm not going to fall for it. You know, we would know that, but that's not how it works. Actually, his deception is much more similar to how rat poisoning works. If you know anything about rat poisoning, the rat poison, you can just go and get off the shelf. It's pretty interesting. More than 99% of rat poisoning, the material in it, the ingredients used to make it, are completely harmless. The term is inert. They, they won't do anything. That means more than 99% of what's in rat poisoning, rats can sit and eat all day long and nothing will happen other than the fact that they'll get fat. That's it. But there's that, in some cases, it's as little as 0.005% is poison. So the rats, that's what makes it so effective. The rats are sitting there just chomping away, eating this poison. They have no idea that it's going to lead to their death. Our enemy is very similar. He is, Jesus said he's the father of lies. He's the best there is. No one else is better than him. And he's so good that just like those rats sitting there chomping on that rat poison, completely unaware it's going to lead to their death, we'll sit there and we'll buy up deception after deception after deception, and we have no idea that we're doing it and no idea what's going to happen, no idea what he has in store for us. That's the enemy that we're up against. But another thing that the Bible teaches us about deception is not just that we have an enemy who's deceptive, but we ourselves are deceptive. We are deceptive. This is what it says in Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So what does this mean? Well, the heart in the Bible, the heart is the core of who you are. So it's where your desires come from. It's where your emotions, your thoughts, your ranking of what's most important in life comes from your heart. Your, your perspective on how life works. This is, this is how life works. This is what I need to do in order to get ahead. Whatever those things might be, all of that, according to the Bible, that's coming out of the core of who you are, your heart. So when it says that it's deceitful, what it's saying is that the very core of you, your nature is messed up. And that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve gave in to that initial deception, and we've inherited that same heart. So just like Adam and Eve fell into deception, we too fall into deception, and it says it's without cure. That means as long as we're alive on this planet, we are going to struggle with this deceitful heart that we have that's set not only on accepting deception, but also on furthering the deception. We have to, if we don't believe that, we are going to get tripped up time and time again. We have to realize at our very core, this is what's going on. Because of this, there are a few implications. One is we deceive others. It's one of the things that happens because we're deceptive. We deceive others. You don't have to look very far to see examples of this. I mean, just in relationships, what we'll do is we'll present an image of ourself that is not accurate. We'll leave out information that's true but might make us look bad. 
or we'll add false information, again, just to kind of make ourselves look better. We do this all the time in relationships. So we've got to realize that we deceive others. And then another part of this is we actually deceive ourselves. Because of this deceptive heart that we have, we deceive ourselves. This, to me, is a very scary idea. I mean, it's one thing to think, okay, there's other people out there that are trying to deceive me. But to think that I could be deceived and I could be the cause of that deception, that's a scary idea. This is what it says, Obadiah, verse 3. It says this, it says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? What this verse is describing is it's describing people that have really kind of, they're kind of self-made. They've built up security for themselves. They've got it all put together. They think, hey, nobody can mess with me. Nobody can take this away from me. I'm secure. That's what this verse is describing. It's saying the pride of your heart has deceived you. Another verse on this, 1 Corinthians 3.18 This is what it says. It says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standard of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Again, this verse is saying that we can easily deceive ourselves. Wise according to the standard of this age is essentially we think that we have it all figured out. We have all the answers. We know everything. Man has reached his pinnacle. We've got it together. It says if you think that, you need to become fools. You need to go back and you need to look at what the Bible has to say to make sure that your thinking is in line. Because we can easily deceive ourselves. Now, an interesting point here is what are the commonalities? What's the common source of deception in these two verses? What is it that causes the self-deception in these two verses? Well, it's pride. Pride causes the deception in both of these verses. What pride says to us is it says, I know enough. I'm strong enough. I don't need their input. I have control. I know more than God. I've got it all figured out. That's what pride says. Now, I don't know very many people that will verbalize those things. I don't know very many people that will say, I know more than God. Or very many people that say, no, I don't know, I don't need any input because I've got it all figured out. But if you look at the pattern of our lives, all of us, if you look at the pattern of our lives, what you'll realize is pride has a lot more influence on us than we want to admit. We do a lot more things out of pride because we think the things on this list, we think we know more, we think we've got it figured out, we think that we're secure enough. We operate based on this. The pride of our heart is deceiving us. In the movie, actually, for the horsemen to defeat the bad guy, they, they realize this about their enemy, so they play on his arrogance, on his ego. And so they decide, okay, if we pull these tricks, he thinks he's so smart that he'll jump to these conclusions. And they use that against him. So you add their deception of him with his self-deception, and it ultimately leads to our, his downfall. So in order for us to understand deception, understand really what we're up against, we've got to realize, okay, we've got an enemy who's deceptive. We ourselves are deceptive, but not only are we deceiving others, we also are deceiving ourselves. So then the question is, how can we avoid deception? So that's the answer we're going to, the answer we're going to look at. How can we, or the question we're going to look at, how can we avoid deception? There's a quote in the movie by one of the main characters. The character's name is Daniel Atlas. He's one of the main Um, horseman, and this is what he says about avoiding deception. He says, evil men operate in darkness, but when they are brought into the light, their evil deeds become known, and the truth comes out in the light. And what's interesting about this quote is how similar it is to what the Bible says about overcoming deception. This is what the Bible says, 1 John 1, 5 through 7, says, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us.
from all sin. So what this is saying is deception grows in the darkness. That's where it grows. So where there are shadows, where it can hide, that's where the deception grows. But when there's light, when you shine the light on it, when you turn the lights on, that deception is seen for what it is, reality is revealed, and people can understand what's really going on. So if we are going to avoid deception in our lives, God is referred to as light. That means we have to walk in the light, and that really involves two things. Even in this verse, it brings it up. Fellowship with one another and a close relationship with God. That's what we have to have if we're going to avoid deception. So let's look at the first one of these. The first thing we need if we're going to avoid deception is we need friends who will tell you the truth. Friends who will tell the truth if we're going to avoid deception. Proverbs 28, 23 is a good verse on this. What it says is this. It says, whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favor rather than one who has a flattering tongue. So whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favor rather than one who has a flattering tongue. Now this word rebuke especially for us, that can kind of be a, a tough word to swallow because that, that seems, um, it seems mean. And we don't like to tell people stuff that may, they might not want to hear. So we hear the word rebuke and we think, okay, well, that's kind of a mean-spirited word maybe, somebody who's a know-it-all. But actually the idea of that word is somebody's caught up in something that's not true, and so you are coming alongside and you're telling them the truth. You're shining light on this deception. So what he's saying is that's something that we need. We need people in our lives who are willing to do that. But the challenge for us either to be that person or to have those people in our lives, is there's kind of two big challenges. One is we think that happiness is the most important thing in life. That is a huge idea in our culture. We think happiness is the most important thing. So if somebody is believing a lie, but they're happy, what if the lie makes them happy? Well, then if I tell them the truth, I might jeopardize their happiness. So why would I tell them the truth? Because happiness is such a big deal. See, happiness, the, de- the deception that leads to happiness is much more important than the truth. Another problem for us is we want people to like us. And we think that if I tell somebody the truth, they might not like me. If I say something that they might not want to hear, well, then they might not be my friend. So I should only, kind of like what this verse says when it first to a flattering tongue, I should only say stuff that, they, that makes them feel good. I should only say stuff that they like. Otherwise, I won't have friends. And we miss the point. The point is, here's the point. The point is that heaven and hell are real. They are real places. They are locations that each one of us will end up at one of those two locations. Another point is that God and Satan are real. There is a God who created all this. He is transcendent. He is the authority. He is in control over all of this. Not only did he create this and he's in control, but he's involved in the small details of our lives. There's also an enemy that he has that's seeking to destroy us. He's referred to, just like the verse we looked at, as a murderer. These are truths. Another thing is that right and wrong are not relative to who you are or your situation. This God who created all this, he determined what's right and he determined what's wrong. What that means for me is that I don't want some fantasy happiness only to realize that I've been deceived and be separated from God for all of eternity. I would rather the temporary sting of somebody telling me the truth instead of running the risk of believing a lie. We all need people in our lives who care about us enough that they're willing to take the risk and tell us the truth. I have an example of this from my life. Um, Back in college, there was a situation where I really got caught up in a really big lie. And the lie had to do, um, the university that I was going to, sports were everything. If you played sports, you were pretty much a local celebrity. The little kids, they would come up to you, they would ask for your autograph, the 
kids would idolize you, even their parents. I mean, this is kind of sad. We, we still do it in our culture, but adults would pretty much worship the ground that these 18 and 20-year-olds walked on. I mean, they were just celebrated for who they were because they were these college athletes. So I saw this and I thought, okay, if, if my life's going to have value, then I need to be one of these guys. I need to be able to make it on one of these teams and achieve this. So I set out and that's my goal. And what I did is, I wasn't aware of this, what I did in the process is I took my faith in Jesus and I put it on the sideline. Still went to church every Sunday, still showed up at Bible study, but when it came to my walk with God, it was sidelines. Something else was the goal. My free time, my thoughts, my dreams, my energy, my money, it all went to this other goal. I was actually so deceived that at the time when people would ask me, you know, I would try to make it sound real spiritual. Oh, well, you know, I'm pursuing this because I want to tell people about Jesus on the sports team. I would make it out that that's my aim. I had no idea at the time that I had no influence, and I, in fact, was the one being influenced in the wrong direction. I was completely unaware of this. So one of my friends contacts me, somebody who speaks the truth. He said, hey, Elliot, I want to meet up with you. I want to talk to you about something. So we meet up. And when he explained, he, he brought all this to light for me. He started to explain all this to me. When he explained it to me, I thought he was so ridiculous, I laughed in his face. I was like, dude, you're a joke, man. I'm still going to church. I'm still doing Bible studies. By the way, I'm trying to witness to these people. I mean, come on, man. He's like, Elliot, you know, if you just looked at your life, I think you'd see a different story. I laughed at him because I thought he was so ridiculous. God used that conversation to bother me. It bothered me. After he left, even though I laughed, I couldn't forget it. I couldn't stop thinking about what he said. Part of it was, is there any truth to that? And the other part of it was, how dare he come to me and say that? But it led to the point where I actually got some more input. Had some other people come, and they said the same thing that he said. I realized, okay, I am actually believing a lie. I've deceived myself. I've allowed... I mean, in our culture, if you achieve that level of success, you're big time. I allowed that lie to deceive me. And I put these other things that are much more important on the sideline. That conversation he had with me, I was thinking about it, that was uh, a little over 12 years ago. I think about all that God's done over that period of time since then. I'm so grateful that he came to me when he did, and he didn't allow me to live in that lie for any longer. If we're going to avoid deception, we all need people in our lives who will come alongside us and tell us the truth. And even though there's going to be a temporary sting, and even though there are times that we want, don't want to hear it, the reason is, is because it's much better to realize what the truth is and get in line with it than to just have some fantasy that's making us feel happy in the meantime, only to realize later on that we've been deceived and we've completely missed the point. The second thing that we need to do if we're going to avoid deception is we need to stay close to God. Stay close to God. This is what it says in James 4.8. It says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Now remember, in 1 John 1, it talked about God is light. So come near to God is the idea of, okay, I'm going I'm to come more and more into the light. I'm going to get closer and closer to God. So what does this mean? What does James have in mind when he says this? Well, he doesn't have in mind physical proximity. We might think about, okay, I'm going to come close to God in physical proximity. That's not what he has in mind, because actually when it comes to physical proximity, there's nowhere we can go to change our physical proximity to God. Whether we're inside, whether we're outside, whether we're on a mountain, whether we're under the sea, it doesn't matter. When it comes to our physical proximity with God, that does not change. He's everywhere. But what does change is our relational proximity. See, God is a person. And because he is a person, he wants a relationship with us. So while I can't change my physical proximity, I can change my relational proximity. 
And so let's just think about this. How do you change your relational proximity with a person? Let's, let's say my wife. I mean, I'm sure that you guys have all experienced this. Let's, you know, you're in a relationship with somebody, you really care about them, but you just had a fight. You just had some kind of argument, and then you're sitting next to them. Do you feel relationally close in that moment? You might be physically close because you're sitting right next to them, but relationally you couldn't be further apart. Well, with God, it's the same way. Even though we can't change that physical proximity, we have to change the relational proximity, so to speak. We have to come near to God in the relationship. So kind of to help us understand this, I'm going to use an example with my wife and our marriage because when it comes to our relationship with God, we just we make it way too complex. We make it, okay, there's this invisible God out there who I've never seen, and we forget a bunch of things that are key to the relationship, and we make it, oh, I just can't, I don't even know how I'd ever relate to this guy. But let me use this example, and hopefully this will kind of clear it up. So with my wife, um, what are some of the things required if I'm going to have a close relationship with my wife? Well, one is I have to talk. That's a big part of it. If I want a close relationship with my wife, I have to open my mouth and I have to talk. So let's say I get up in the morning, I don't say anything. Get up in the morning, take a shower, don't say a word, eat breakfast, go to work. All day, don't communicate with her at all. No texts, no phone calls, no nothing, no words. Get home from work, no words. Eat dinner, no words. Watch TV, no words, go to bed. Am I going to have a good relationship with my wife? No, I didn't talk at all. I'm not going to have a good relationship. Actually, how we talk to God is prayer. That's how we talk to God. That's how we tell him, hey, this is what's going on. This is what I'm thinking. Again, with prayer, we make it way more complex than it needs to be. It is us talking to God. It's us communicating with him. So we communicate. Our part is to communicate to him through prayer. That's the word we use to describe talking to God. But then it can't just be a one-sided talking, because just like with my wife, if I talk all the time and she never says anything, that's not going to be a good relationship either. It has to be two sides, so there has to be listening. So on my part, I have to listen. And when I say listen, I'm not talking about pretend listening. You guys know what pretend listening is. It's where, you know, every 10 to 15 seconds you throw in kind of that affirmative, mm-hmm, mm, no way. You know what I'm talking about? We do the same thing with God. How does God speak to us? His word, the Bible. It's referred to as his word. Those are his words to us. But we pretend listen with God all the time. We'll sit down to spend time in his word, and then five minutes later, hey, what'd you read about? Um, what did I read about? We'll pretend listen. With my wife, if I want a good relationship, when I listen, it can't be pretend. I have to be engaged. I have to ask questions. I have to try to get more information out of her. I've, I've got to be engaged in that process. You know, when she tells me about her day, I can't just be like, sit there and just listen to the day. I've got to ask more questions. I've got to try to figure out what are her dreams? What are her desires? What are her fears? What are her concerns with our little girl and raising her? I've got to try to figure all this stuff out. There has to be intentionality in the listening on my part. Exact same thing in our relationship with God. When we sit down to spend time listening to God, spending time in his word, we have to be intentional and ask questions. What is God saying to me about who he is? What is God saying to me about who I am? What is God saying to me about how I'm supposed to live? What is God saying to me about how to treat other people? If we don't do that and we don't ask those questions, we're not engaging in that, and that relationship's not going to get closer. So talking and listening, just like in any human relationship, same thing in our relationship with God. Now let me ask you this. With my wife, how often should we have this conversation? How often should we talk and listen? Once a year? Twice a year? Once a month, maybe? Once a week, maybe we talk and listen? probably multiple times a day if I really want a close relationship with my wife. Same thing with God. He's a person that wants a relationship. 
He has done the majority of the work. We have to do our part. We have to come close. And that means in the relationship, we've got to start talking, and then we've got to start actively listening. But it goes beyond that. It's not just the talking and listening. There's actually an action element to any relationship. See, if I'm talking to my wife, and I realize, which we've had this conversation, Elliot, it really annoys me when you make 95% of the dishes and you never clean the dishes. We've had that exact conversation, okay? Now, if I just go, oh, honey, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. And I never do the dishes, is that relationship going to get close? No, I have to take action. She's just shared something with me that's important. I've got to act on it if I actually care about that relationship. Exact same thing in our relationship with God. The difference is, is even though my wife is the most meaningful human relationship I will have on this earth, God is still God. The relationship I have with God is still more important than the relationship that I have with, God, with my wife because God created me. He created this world. He's the one that put the structure and the guidelines in place. So when God says something, it's not just a preference. Hey, I would appreciate it if you wouldn't do this. Hey, it kind of bothers me when you do this. No, it's, hey, if you want to experience life the way that it was intended to be lived, if you want to avoid being deceived and avoid destruction, this is what you need to do. They're commands and instructions. They're not just suggestions over, hey, I'm kind of feeling this way. I would like you to do this. But if we don't take action in those areas, then again, what we're communicating is we really don't care about this relationship. We can act like it, we can say it, but unless there's action, we're communicating. This relationship really isn't that big a deal to me. One of the challenges to us in any relationship is we like to relate to the other person on our terms. What I mean by that is we like to kind of deter, we like to tell them what they'll like. You know, you'll really like it if I do this, or you know, I know this much about you, so I'm going to treat you this way. We like to kind of project our own idea about them onto them instead of paying attention to who they really are and how to accurately relate to them. We do this with other people. We do this with God. An example from my marriage where I did this, um, our first Christmas, I decided to buy my wife a pair of shoes. And there's these pair of shoes, and I was like, okay, she's going to love these shoes. Actually, the reason she's going to love these shoes is because I love those shoes. And I've actually had like six pairs, the most comfortable shoes I've ever worn. They're like kind of an athletic shoe. I wear them every day. Super comfortable shoes. I love them. So I was like, okay, if I buy these for my wife, she's going to feel loved, and she's really going to love these shoes. So leading up to Christmas, I'd already bought them. And so I let on some hints. I was like, hey, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you had these same shoes that I have? And she let on some not-so-subtle hints that, no, I don't like those shoes. Please don't buy those for me. But you know what? I know more than my wife about those shoes. And so, hey, she's really going to feel loved if I get these shoes for her. Even though she told me she's not, but she's really going to feel loved. So I went ahead and I bought them for her. And I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, she's worn them a few times. I don't know if she's ever worn them in public. I think she just wore them to make me feel good. But I shouldn't be surprised by that at all because I wasn't paying attention to what she was telling me. The sad thing is, is we, all of us, myself included, we'll do the same thing when it comes to God. He'll give very clear instruction. He might even give a command on something. Well, it was more of a suggestion. And in my case, it's not a command, it's an optional. Or we'll read something about what he says and say, well, you know, like times have changed, and so here is an accurate interpretation. And essentially, we'll do the same thing that the serpent did all the way back at the very beginning. And we'll twist it all up. It might be a deception from the outside, or it might be our prideful hearts deceiving us. And we'll get caught in this deception, and we'll project on God who we think he is, and what he thinks he's saying, and we'll completely ignore what he's saying. In Luke 6, 46, this is what Jesus says. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? In other words, 
what are you doing claiming you want a close relationship with me when you don't take what I say seriously and put it into action? That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, if you want a close relationship with me, you've got to relate to me. And then when I say to do things, you've got to do them. You can't just be like, oh, okay, God, I'm going to cruise over here for a little while. If we do that, we can't be surprised when the relationship isn't close. And when the relationship isn't close, we're not in the light. If we're not in the light, the deception is going to be much more effective in our lives. So if we're going to avoid deception, the two things review. We need people who they themselves are walking with God, they're walking in the light, who are willing to speak truth into our lives. They're willing to take the risk and shine the light on the dark areas, the areas of shadow where we can't see, and bring to reality what's really going on. We all need those people. And then the second thing that we need to do, this is so important, we have to draw close to God relationally. We have to get close to him. And that means we're going to have to start praying more. We've got to start spending more time in his word listening. And then when we learn things, we have to put those into action. As we do that, we walk in the light. This God who created all this, he will reveal to us what's really going on. If we don't do that and we keep ignoring what he's saying, then that deception can take hold. And the risk is, I mean, the enemy made it clear. He is a murderer. His goal is to destroy us. And we can't just be naive to his deceptions. We have to be aware of what's going on, and then we've got to take advantage of these things that God's given us so that we can avoid being trapped up in these. I've got a couple next steps for you guys before we um, wrap up the service. The first next step, these are actually on the bottom of your message notes. The reason we give next steps, so we just talked about a relationship. You've got to take action. The reason we give next steps is because you can come, you can hear a message from me or from Bevan or from whoever, these are suggestions on how to practice this to get that relationship closer. So here's a few suggestions. You might come up with some of your own. The first one is to spend time with friends who will tell you the truth. We need these people in our lives. So I'd encourage you, if you have these people in your lives, spend some time with them intentionally so that they can speak some truth in your lives. Also, if you don't have somebody in your life or a group of friends who will tell you the truth, I would encourage you, you need to go and pursue those. And that will require you to be honest with some people, open up about what's going on in your life. And then the final one, so we just talked about several different ways to spend time with God. You're talking to him, you're listening, you're taking action based on what he says. So for you, figure out what does that look like for me to spend time in, with God. I guarantee you it will involve prayer, and I guarantee you it will involve his word. Without those two, you're not communicating. So it's going to have prayer in his word, but what's that going to look like for you? Decide what that's going to look like and then start spending time with God.